Welcome back to Keeping It OD Podcast and happy Monday. So glad you decided to tune into this week's episode because today is the first of many faculty interview episodes. I'm delighted to have with me today Dr. Sweeney Dorman from OMSL Optometry. Dr. Dorman will share a little bit about her experience at OMSL and what the program has to offer their students. Dr. Sweeney Dorman graduated top of her class from SCO in 2011 and went on to complete a residency in private practice in 2012. She now serves as an assistant clinical professor at OMSL and is also part of the admissions interview process. Okay, so without further ado, I'll let Dr. Sweeney introduce herself and then we're going to get right into questions. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in and thanks for the opportunity. Uh, my name is Dr. Sarah Sweeney Dorman. Um, uh, like it was mentioned, I graduated from SCO in 2011 and went on to complete a, a residency in that was set in a private practice, but it also specialized in um, not just general primary care, but also pediatric special needs, vision therapy, and specialty lenses. So it was a little bit of everything. Um, and after completing the residency in 2012, I worked in private practices, general private practices, ODMD practices, um, a specialty BT practice um, before I ended up joining the faculty at UMSL. Uh, and there I am involved in the pediatric vision therapy department as well as uh, primary care, adult primary care. Um, and then I also uh, am part of the instruction series for clinical optometry, which is a lot of kind of teaching you individual parts of an opt optometric exam and then how to put them together to create one comprehensive exam. Awesome. So um, if you want to go ahead and start by just giving us an overview of the OMSL optometry program, a little bit about the curriculum, didactics, and um, clinical involvement um, on campus. Sure. Um, so like a lot of other optometry programs in the U.S., uh, in Puerto Rico, because there's a kind of a mirroring um, effect, and, and, you know, we've got um, organizations like ASCO and the ACOE that are kind of um, governing organizations over a lot of the colleges of optometry that help us develop a curriculum that's going to produce doctors that know what they're doing. Um, and it's kind of our job to make sure that we're meeting those requirements, but also trying to prepare our students to practice in any state and to whatever scope of practice that they care to do. Um, so with that being said, it makes sense that we kind of review our uh, curriculum regularly to make sure that we're keeping up with state laws. We do have a lot of uh, candidates and applicants from the Midwest that also go to the Midwest once they graduate and, and start seeing a patient. So we kind of um, try to keep up with what's going on in the Midwest as far as state to state laws go. Um, the program as a whole, um, it kind of mirrors a lot of other typical types of programs. Uh, we do have some outreach programs and community service settings um, that I think are pretty remarkable and definitely needed in certain areas of the Midwest, especially more urban areas of St. Louis. Um, with uh, COVID, I feel like a lot of the other schools are also kind of feeling uh, kind of the strain about like how to uh, change instruction and, and how to um, kind of meet the students where they need to be so they can still get the type of education and instruction that they need from a safe distance so we're managing to take care of everybody not only academically but also physically and mentally and emotionally um i feel like um a lot of the faculty are very committed 
a lot of us have subspecialties that we kind of bring to the table. And I think that helps round out a lot of the curriculum and instruction at UMSL. Um, the, the curriculum is designed to help students succeed by teaching basic concepts that kind of act as, as building blocks onto which more concepts and skills can, can be built. Um, so when you're coming in as a first year, you know, we try to organize the curriculum in a way that the students are ready and prepared to take on this type of um, type of concepts and theory. And then we start just like with any other sort of advanced program, we start building more, building more uh, advanced topics on top of that. Um, there is opportunity for research, specialization, uh, work study to gain experience at the college. Um, and that's pretty much available to any student who is interested. And I think that really helps round out the program. There's also campus organizations um, that are, again, common in other, uh, in other optometry schools. But specifically here at UMSL, um, we've got a pretty committed uh, SFOSH organization, which stands for Students, uh, students in Vision, I'm sorry, SFOSH. Optometric Service for Humanity. So I'm sorry, it's a student version of Volunteers to Optometric Service for Humanity. Um, we have a, a student organization that's devoted where you can, um, you do a lot of community service, you try to raise money to travel abroad to set up clinics for uh, underprivileged or, or areas of um, need. Um, and then they also have a, a doctor version of that where we don't bring students, but most of the time if we can bring students to help, I think it's great experience for everybody and it helps us be more impactful when we go. Um, we also have organizations, um, uh, which is a fellowship of Christian optometrists called FCO. Um, we basically kind of um, rely on kind of like fellowship together and try to build each other up when we have certain goals, whether they're career or academic goals. We've got the private practice club. So if anybody's interested in opening up a private practice after graduation, uh, we have speakers coming in to talk about, well, if you want to incorporate this in your private practice, if you want to set up in this place, do you want to be in an OD? Just kind of basically anything that applies to private practices is up for um, discussion and education as part of that organization. Um, I'm trying to figure out, we've got a lot of, oh, of course we've got a, a student chapter of the AOA, so called the uh, Optometric, or Associate of Optometric Students. Um, we've got a COVD chapter, so if you're interested in vision therapy, pediatrics, or developmental vision, we have speakers that typically do what they call a tour day optometry once a year. Um, trying to think, and we have got a NOSA chapter, which is the National Organization of Student um, uh, optometrists. I'm trying to think of that. I've got them all listed here. I'm trying to keep them all organized. Um, as far as uh, kind of like campus life goes, non-COVID is obviously very different than, than what it is with COVID. Um, intramurals are really, really popular. Because we're a college that's part of a greater university, we get to take advantage of a lot of the offerings that the university has not just on the, our campus, but also on the North Campus. Um, we have access to library and interlibrary loan services, just like a lot of you do in undergrad. Um, the Optometry Scholars Program is a research program that's open to anybody who's interested. It's not necessarily like a competitive type of program where you have to apply. Um, but Dr. Carl Bassey is kind of the, the um, ringleader of that type of endeavor. Um, and he is very open to setting up research techniques or, or studies or getting you to work with maybe another study that's going on in another optometry college. Um, again, oh, for um, more campus activities other than like intramurals and working and, you know, hanging out at the rec. 
Uh, we usually participate in a chili competition. So we'll have some of the faculty come up with recipes and we taste test them and then we send the best one to be like campus-wide chili competition. And we got second place last year, so that was kind of exciting. Um, and of course, there's a lot of students who are involved in being a student ambassador and also participating in interest fairs. So because we're you know, a professional college in the university setting that has an undergrad program, we have a lot of students who are interested in staying within UMSL and coming to our, our College of Optometry. So we do a lot of fairs and like informational um, gatherings. Now they're virtual, but they used to be in person um, and a lot of students are really involved with those too. Um, I feel like over overview of the program, I feel like that's a kind of a good idea for the overview of the program and kind of like what to expect from, from campus life there. Awesome. So um, as a clinician, professor, and also um, part of the interview admissions process, what do you think makes a competitive applicant? Uh, that's a great question. So when we, um, a little bit about the admissions process. The admissions process now is very different than when I was in school because it's very uh, kind of standardized or universal. So you know, you submit your application and you can kind of select which schools where you want to go to. So everybody's application process, I feel like is pretty similar because of that. Um, when we're looking at a candidate's application, we do consider things like undergraduate GPA, the type of course load that was taken, uh, the major and how it relates to, you know, achieving prerequisites and how well they did in core classes like uh, physics and, and chemistry and, and biology. Um, we also look at your OAT scores, obviously, but you don't necessarily have to take the OAT. So if you have another professional uh, aptitude test uh, like the MCAT, the DAT, or the GRE, we have conversion tables uh, where we can kind of um, predict how well you would have done on the OAT had you taken it, and that helps us gain confidence in your ability to manage the type of curriculum and material you would have in optometry school. Um, we look a lot at the uh, letters of recommendation um, and kind of like who was selected to do letters of recommendation. So um, if you were able to shadow and establish relationships with either optometrists or ophthalmologists, um, that fares well for a candidate applicant. Um, we're also looking at extracurricular activities and service activities. It's really not all about GPA. I mean, it certainly helps if you have a good GPA or you did well on the OET, but it's certainly not all about that. Um, the interview, I feel like a lot of times is kind of like the make or break it type of uh, part of the application. There's been more than one time when we've had an applicant where um, the OET looks really great, the GPA looks really great, service and shadowing experience looks phenomenal. Um, but the applicant just didn't seem really passionate or motivated about becoming an optometrist and, and joining, you know, the family of, of optometry here at UMSL. Um, and that's always a very difficult interview to get through because on paper, everything looks great. But then in the interview, it just, if there's not that spark of passion or that spark of motivation, that's really telling. Um, on the flip side of that, you know, if we've got a candidate that may look not quite as fantastic on paper, say the GPA isn't quite, you know, up to what we would expect or what we would like to see, um, or the OAT maybe had like a reduced physics performance or whatever, um, and maybe like limited shadowing, you know, you're taking an application that's kind of mediocre, but during the interview, if that uh, candidate is, you know, really passionate about becoming an optometrist, has their plan in mind, can see themselves and has a vision for where they want to be um, as part of their profession, 
that to me is a game changer. You know, uh, I can take, I would love to have a mediocre student who is very teachable um, and humble and willing to learn over the type of student that might, you know, good grades come naturally to them, but if they're not really motivated to be the best clinician and optometrist as they can be, that first type of student is way funner to work with. And I feel like they get more out of instruction in the program. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of the times um, students are discouraged to apply because, you know, their application doesn't look good on paper, but that's refreshing to hear. Um, and I know that as of recently, OMSOL has um, required the CASPER exam. So I think you've touched on that. So without taking the CASPER or the OET, could you still get an interview? Uh, that's a great question. So this is our first admissions round where CASPER requirement has been kind of set up or made, you know, the CASPER exam made kind of like a requirement. Um, in years past, when we haven't required CASPER, we have accepted students who haven't taken the OAT because we have those types of, we have a couple of members of the committee that have really um, kind of devoted to making sure that they're looking at the analysis of other uh, aptitude tests and seeing how they kind of correspond to the OAT. Um, there are a lot of uh, areas of overlap with aptitude tests, especially like with the MCAT and the DAT. Um, so as far as, because this is our first round where we're requiring the CASPER component. Um, I don't believe that that's possible. Like you have to have the CASPER component to technically apply. Um, but I'd also like to say if we have an outstanding applicant, you know, later in the cycle, who is fantastic and just didn't have the opportunity to, to complete the CASPER component, um, I'd like to think that we wouldn't just arbitrarily say it's an absolute no, especially if they're an outstanding candidate and really motivated. Um, that's a great question. I'm not really sure how to answer it. Oh, that thing, that was a good answer. It's just, it's very new. And I think a lot of people um, still are trying to figure out like how to take it, when to take it um, because of the set dates that they put on it. Right. Um, so I think you've alluded to this um, earlier, but can, if we can just go like briefly explain the applicant review process. So you get the OptomCast um, and then the CASPER. Mm -hmm. What, how is um, the applicant reviewed? So is there any like specific ranking to stuff like as the, um, you know, personal statement, letters, grades? Um, when do you make the call to call an applicant for an interview? Sure. So we, we look at we weigh the GPA, the OAT score, uh, CASPER completion, um, and we make sure that all the documents are, are in order. And as long as all the documents are there and things look pretty acceptable, a lot of times applicants will get a call and be invited for an interview. Um, as far as what gets weighted, that's a decision that we're not technically part of the process of. Um, like, I don't know if they put more emphasis on looking at GPA or OAT scores versus, you know, letters of recommendation, or even just the fact that all of the legwork has been done for the application, like the OptomCast application process, because I know it's a lot to have everything all together and have everything approved and, and ready to go. Um, what we're looking for once an, an applicant has been invited for an interview, um, again, kind of like what we talked about, we look at everything 
to me, I don't think that one thing is necessarily more important than the other. Um, obviously, if you if you are able to score outstanding uh, or have outstanding scores um, on your OAT or other aptitude test, um, and also do well with your GPA, that means a lot. Um, your personal statement, I feel like, is kind of like the chance for your applicant reviewer uh, or the the member of the admissions committee to kind of get to know you before they actually meet you. So I feel like it's a good opportunity to put something in there um, that might make you feel like you stand apart or can bring up a talking point during your interview so your, so your admissions uh, reviewer can get to know you a little bit better. Um, we typically interview in pairs and depending on schools, sometimes you interview in groups. So you'll have several members of the admissions committee, you know, interviewing one person. But here at UMSL, we have uh, two faculty members of the committee uh, interviewing an, applic an applicant at the time. Um, and we do talk about applicants, you know, after the interview to make sure that we're not missing anything or misunderstanding an impression. Um, but a lot of times it's, we're in agreement, um, whether that's a, an immediate admit, um, or maybe like a hold situation because there might be something that, that is concerning about the application. Um, but we try to be really prompt with getting any sort of feedback back to the applicant because I know it's a very stressful process for you guys and any sort of feedback, uh, you know, when you get it quickly, I think is helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so having experienced two different optometry schools, SCO and OMSOL, what makes OMSOL different from other programs in your opinion? So yeah, this is a great question. And this is actually something that I ask a lot of the applicants when they're interested in coming to OMSOL. I kind of want to know what makes OMSOL attractive to them. And by and large, a lot of the response is the class size, the fact that we have a, a lower um, uh, or the type of ratio that students want where we have, you know, a faculty, the member of our faculties is not necessarily the largest that you would find in any sort of college of optometry, but the ratio of student to faculty um, is such that we have the ability to really get to know a lot of our students. The students get to know each other well. It's not, you don't get lost in a sea of students, but it's also not small enough where I feel like you'd be um, kind of jeopardizing your clinical experience working with such a limited number of people. Um, I also think the class size, to me, it's, it's big enough where you can have a lot of experience with other types of people who are not like you, whether that's visually or culturally or, or whatever. Um, but it's small enough to still get to know everybody really well. And that goes with, um, that also applies to like getting to know upperclassmen and lowerclassmen well. Um, like I feel the first years have a great relationship with the second years and the second years have a great relationship with the third years because you're all on campus at the same time and it's a small enough place that you're going to run into each other and you're going to kind of the second years are going to learn things from the third years um, and the first years if they hang around long enough uh, they're able to kind of pick up things too. Um, when I was at SCO we were we have a larger class size there traditionally it's a larger class size um, and I, while I still felt like I got to know everybody in my class, it was just more work to try to do that uh, just because there were so many people um, and it was a larger faculty. I did feel like sometimes um, that maybe the professors didn't know my name, so I had to kind of remind them who I was. Um, but you know, as the years go on, it got a lot easier. Um, I feel like that length of time where the professors aren't really sure who you are um, is way shorter at UMSL because the, the class size is just smaller. Um, that's, I think, one of the funnest things from a, from a faculty point of view is getting to know 
the students, not just visually or like in their academic performance, but who they are as a person and kind of where they see themselves. And um, it's just fun to see them blossom when they really start to get something and become just like a doctor, you know, as, as still as a student. Um, so I feel like the class sizes is an advantage uh, or something different that UMSL has to offer. Um, we obviously have a, a clinic that's fairly new that opened in 2016 and a lot of other optometry schools have either older clinics or, or clinics that are, you know, kind of currently going through remediation processes. But um, uh, we also have our uh, mobile eye clinic. Um, so the MEC is kind of like, um, uh, like a Winnebago, like a big RV that's been converted to uh, a multi-lane, uh, multi-examination lane um, vehicle. So there's three exam chairs where we actually can go around to different schools and provide full comprehensive dilated exams to students and they can get glasses and prescriptions there. Um, their parents sign off and, and um, approve of that process. Um, but a lot of times we're serving schools where parents either don't have the means or the time um, or the ability to take their kids to have their eyes examined. And knowing how valuable vision is with learning, that's a, a, just a, a great opportunity for us to, to be a resource to the community. Awesome. So um, you mentioned earlier that there's a lot of um, opportunities for research. So as an, a program, are there any other degrees that OD students can earn while simultaneously working on their OD degree? Sure. So the MBA program is still kind of new. Uh, we do have a couple of students who are working on it. So MBA, you know, um, we're looking at your uh, getting a business degree, but you know, a master's in business administration. Um, so if you do feel like you're, you're going to end up in private practice, um, as somebody who I feel like I struggle with understanding the, the kind of like the, the P&L part, the money management, how you manage uh, an actual private practice, I feel like having an MBA degree would have made it a whole lot easier, especially if you're wanting to start cold or start your own practice. Um, or maybe you're taking over an existing practice where, you know, the money part of things wasn't really well done and you want to make it more profitable and, and, and better for your patients and for your employees. Having an MBA would, would obviously be a, a huge asset. Um, most schools offer an OD PhD program and that has been offered in the past. Uh, we had um, kind of like a, uh, a faculty turnover a number of years back, as I understand this was before I joined the faculty. Um, and the interest in that has kind of waned over time. What it seems kind of like what a lot of new applicants are interested in is not so much doing an OD PhD program, is doing uh, rather than, uh, or instead completing your OD and looking more to do a residency so you can develop a subspecialty. If you wanna do research, sometimes a PhD is necessary, but there's a lot of research that's available where a PhD is not necessary. Awesome. All right. Um, so what are resources that are made available for students, whether that being um, academic help or extra um, clinical hours so they can practice their skills? Um, what are resources that are made for students once they come on board? Sure. Um, I actually had a, a, a note here, like listing all the resources to make sure that I wasn't missing anything. Okay, so again, we have the, if you're doing research or you're doing a, um, a term paper, we've got access to the library and interlibrary loans. Um, our pre-clinic, again, during normal non-COVID times is open 24 seven. 
Uh, so as long as the building is open, which is also open 24 seven, you just have your sweat card on the weekends. Um, you can have access to an exam lane with all of the instruments that you would need to perform a comprehensive exam. Um, and that makes it really kind of easy to practice at your leisure. Right now, what we're doing is uh, we have approved times that are reserved by students. So we're making sure this is an effort to try to keep um, the number of students in a very small space limited because obviously we don't want a lot of people in a really small space for a long period of time because it's not exactly the type of social distancing that we're doing. But we also have this reservation sheet in effort to contact trace if we need to. Um, so right now we have like an online reservation system uh, where students are still able to come in. And from the students, I'm hearing that it's still very open. They're having plenty of time to still get their practicing in. So the fact that the normally the preclinic is open 24-7, um, even with that restricted access, students are still feeling that they have ample time to get in there to practice. Uh, we have a preclinic proper that has um, some slit lamps that have, or microscopes when you're doing an, uh, an ocular health check, that have um, cameras associated with them. So you can actually record and freeze frame things that you're seeing under your microscope, which is pretty cool. And that's very similar to what you would have on part three when you take part three of boards. We also have a boards room, which is an exam lane that's set up identically to what you would expect when you take your part three boards as a fourth year student. Um, so I feel like that kind of lessens the stress about taking part three in North Carolina, which is currently where it's happening. Uh, so you're familiar with all the equipment and instrumentation, which is exactly the same. So hopefully that takes a little bit of the stress and anxiety away from preparing for that. Um, let's see, I'm trying to think. Again, the research program, um, trying to think of other types of resources. We do have, um, we do have adjunct faculty that will come see patients in certain types of settings. Like we've got community uh, clinics, community-based clinics, where a lot of times we're serving patients who are underprivileged or can't really um, don't really have the means to um, have proper health care. Um, the adjunct faculty brings with them a lot of subspecialties. So sometimes they'll come in and lecture in certain, um, in certain courses. Um, so I feel like that kind of further rounds out that type of curriculum. Um, again, you know, campus activities. I feel like probably our, our, you know, one of our best resources is just having you know, I feel like every member of the faculty is just approachable. I don't really feel like there's anybody who's really not approachable um, and the faculty are just really committed to making sure that the students have all of the resources that they need. Uh, we do have a testing center. So if we have accommodations or you prefer to take exams in a testing center, we're very open to, to meeting those types of accommodations. So um, it's been a little tricky with, you know, Zoom and, and, and social distancing and everything. Um, but the uh, testing center, the IT center at UMSL has been fantastic with working with us um, and students who have accommodations. So um, that's a great kind of benefit of being part of a greater university. True. Um, so this is something that, you know, not a lot of people anticipate. So failure, something that you never anticipate, but you know, it is bound to happen and you might just have, you know, a bad day, get, um, you know, lower grade than you expect. So what is the remediation process like at OMSL if um, that were to happen? Yeah, so um, remediation, we've got typically like didactic remediation, which is when we're looking at lecture courses and that type of material. And then we also have lab remediation. So if you're struggling with clinical skills and performing well on practicals, we have a separate type of remediation than we do with a lecture. It's common, I don't wanna say common, but it's 
well, I guess common enough that some students do really well with didactic material and then struggle with lab performance or vice versa. So just because you might be doing well and or might be doing poorly in one doesn't necessarily you're going to be doing poorly in both aspects of the course. But it's a little bit of a different process. If we have, um, we have an inner faculty um, or an inner organizational um, program where we're able to flag students who are at risk for either performing poorly, sometimes it's attendance, sometimes if we feel like um, maybe their wellness is at risk, like their mental wellness or they're really having a hard time managing stress, we have a wellness committee that's, that's um, kind of devoted to addressing those sort of things. Um, but we also have a, um, a, this remediation process is, is universal throughout all instructors or throughout, throughout all the courses. So I feel like that helps provide documentation of reaching out to the students to see if they need help. Um, if the instructor feels like the student needs a tutor, we're allowed to request that. And they're, they're I don't want to say immediately assigned one, but it's usually the same day that they'll be assigned a tutor. And again, you can have a tutor for, for uh, lab skills as well as didactic skills if that's necessary. Um, we, the remediation process, I feel like, has become more universal in the past year or two. Um, a lot of the instructors have kind of collaborated about, like, you know, if we want students to achieve this level of accuracy on a proficiency, does this seem standard? Let's make that standard all the way across. So I feel like it makes it easier for students to know what to expect if everything's consistent across different courses. So we try to set up a really open type of communication if remediation is necessary. Um, a type of communication that is not judgy or demeaning, um, because I feel like every faculty member can recall one time when they did not do so hot on a practical or on an exam where remediation might have been necessary. Um, and I, I feel like I'm pretty quick to offer remediation to students. I would much rather remediate somebody early in the course or early, er, early in their time here at UMSL then have to kind of like push it back and have to, you know, quote unquote, deal with it when we're actually in clinic seeing patients. Um, the time to have questions and to get extra help is as early as possible because again, we're building more advanced concepts on basic building blocks. And if you don't have a really solid foundation, um, it's going to be really tough to, to get to those higher advanced types of abstract concepts. Um, I really encourage, you know, everybody when they're coming to optometry school, there's going to be a curve. It, you know, you could be, you could feel awesome. You could feel prepared. You could have a great IQ and a great GPA, but there's going to be this adjustment period. Um, and just kind of trying to stay self-aware of how you're doing, I think is the best thing to really keep about yourself when you're, when you're really stressed out about things. Just um, if you need help, ask for help. Again, there's no judgment. It does technically go on your record, but it's really just kind of establishing documentation that we're reaching out to you and we're doing our job to make sure that you get the help that you need. Awesome. So you mentioned this earlier, um, having the um, room that's set up exactly like part three of boards, um, but how do you prepare your students for the national boards, uh, specifically part one and two? Sure. So a lot of the curriculum that's set by the ACOE and ASCO kind of, you know, it doesn't look at the the NBEO or the National Board of Examiners for Optometry that kind of sets up the board process. They offer rubrics about how to how to prepare for part one, part two, and part three. We don't necessarily tailor our curriculum around that because I feel like there's a lot of things in optometry that's very useful in a in a real world setting. Um, that may not be um, weighted heavily from that organizational review board. Um, but we certainly include everything in that 
in that um, in those outlines for both part one, part two, and part three when we're talking about clinical labs um, into our curriculum. So I feel like there are I feel like there are things that are part of my course that I cover didactically that might have, for lack of a better term, kind of limited clinical application. But I know it's going to be part of the I know it's part of the rubric for part one, and I need to prepare my students to be able to answer those sorts of questions. So you know, as somebody who doesn't have any knowledge or privy to the board question writing process, I know what could be on it, and I want my students to be as prepared as possible and we follow those rubrics and try to explain that. We typically do spend a little bit more time on the things that are going to be more clinically useful, um, but we include in our curriculum everything that could possibly be on that board process. We also have KMK, uh, which is a program um, that's designed to basically, it's kind of like a uh, organizational and also instructional program designed to uh, prepare students for part one. When I was a student, it was just a binder and that's kind of all you had. Um, but now it's actually a, it's kind of like a tour that a lot of KMK instructors will go to optometry schools and we offer that here at UMSL. Um, I think it's the, the weekend after finals in your third year, you have a four day weekend where KMK instructors come in and they teach you as a class about how to kind of organize, what to prepare for, what to expect. Um, and I think it's a great way to kind of jumpstart that preparation process for taking part two that's traditionally done in March. Again, with COVID, things are, are kind of scattered around schedule-wise. Um, but KM, offering KMK on our campus, I think, is probably one of the greater assets. Dr. Sweeney, I enjoyed our um, interview here a lot, but what are some closing thoughts or just one piece of advice that you'd give to prospective students interested in optometry in general and specifically um, OMSL? Oh, I feel like this is a really big question. <laughs> um, so prospective students, you know, any, anybody interested in the field of optometry, uh, I think should shadow as much as they can. Um, not all optometry offices are the same, and there's a lot of opportunity for subspecialties. So, um, you know, knowing, um, knowing what you like is really important, and just that ability to kind of uh, see yourself in a certain setting in so many years, I think, can, can offer you a, a good idea of what you want to do when you're an optometrist. Um, I think something that, that helps the whole optometry process, not just being a student in academia, but also after graduation, um, remaining humble and remaining teachable, I think is probably the, one of the, the, the best types of characteristics you can have uh, as an optometrist. You can go in with all the confidence and you, know, you can be really sure that optometry is what you wanna do, or you can be really sure about a patient that you're seeing, um, but being able to you know, kind of step back and be like, oh, maybe I should think about it differently because it's gonna ultimately you know, result in better care for the patient. I think that's a big deal. And students who remain teachable, um, even if they might struggle with something and we have to spend a little bit more time to really get to the grasping of a concept, I enjoy working with those students so much more because they're motivated and they're going about their education the right way. They're not so focused on just grades, grades, grades. They're looking at the journey and the process and how they're going to be a better clinician at the end of it, even if their grades aren't fully reflecting that. Um, for, for students attending or interested in attending UMSL uh, in general, um, I feel like the best piece of advice um, 
I think I, I can't say this for for all for all schools, but I feel like it's really it's really natural to find your people at UMSL College of Optometry. And I know the class size has a lot to do with that. Um, all of us really have the same goal. We want you to be the best clinician that you can be. And to be the best clinician you can be, you need to be the best student that you can be. Um, you will find friends that are unlike any other friends you've ever had because you have the same goal. You go through the trenches of optometry school and all the trials and the challenges, and you get to celebrate when you do when you do both do well or your group of friends does well in something and obviously there's a big celebration at the end of your four years when you get to graduate um but i feel like the friendships that you can make you know at, at umsol are going to be friends that you can you can have for life um you just get to know each other really well and um um i know personally i wouldn't have been able to get through optometry school if it wasn't for my group of friends um, to just kind of like support and, and motivate each other. Um, and I feel like it, that sort of support and motivation just happens very naturally at UMSL because of the class size. Um, and I think it, it's a huge asset to UMSL. Um, um, and it's just fun. It's kind of fun to see how students kind of rely on each other and end up doing well. Thank you, Dr. Sweeney. Again, I'd like to thank you so much for your time and all the great information that you've given us today about UMSL optometry. Sure. No, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening and, and for reaching out. Um, if we're able to make any, any of this process any clearer or easier or more enjoyable for, um, for students, that's what we're here for. Thank you. Now, that is all for this week's episode. I hope you found it informative. Again, huge thank you to Dr. Sweeney Dorman for taking the time to collaborate on this episode and share with us all the great things that OMSA Optometry has to offer their students. If you want to keep up with the podcast, make sure to follow it on Instagram at keepin.it.od. Also, make sure to follow OMSA Optometry on Instagram to stay up to date with all the awesome things they're up to. It's at OMSA Optometry, all one word. Interact with posts and stories. Let us hear your opinion. I'd love to hear them. Um, again, if you or someone you know would like to collaborate, make sure to email me at keepinitodpodcast and include collab in the subject line. Once again, we'll be right back here next week with a brand new episode. And as always, we will be keeping it OD. Thank you, guys.